of God the Father. Oh, praise him. What a glorious day when all of God's creation will bow the knee and express with the tongue, Christ is king. I invite you to join me in John 12 as we continue our study through the gospel of John, John chapter 12. Before I read this section of scripture that will be our study this morning, I want to remind you that we're at a transition point in the life of Jesus. These words that we cover this morning are like a, a last public proclamation by Jesus before he turns private. Chapters 13, and seven, th- 13 through 17, he'll be with his disciples in the upper room. It'll be a season of private ministry to them, preparing them for his soon death and departure. This exchange in John 12 is somewhere on Monday or Tuesday, I think late Tuesday. Jesus is about to go completely absent from the public scene until late Thursday night, early Friday morning when the soldiers come from the chief priest to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane till he is hailed as criminal, condemned to die in a monkey court. And the crowd cries out at the prompting of the Pharisees, crucify him, crucify him. This is his last public address before all of that takes place. Last week we saw the first section of this text kind of setting up the scene for Jesus' last sermon, his last public declaration to the crowd. We saw the reality of unbelief in the section last week. It's kind of unbelievable unbelief that Jesus had done so much and been so clear And yet they continued in unbelief. And then we saw the reason for that, that God had hardened their hearts, they being unbelieving God, hardening them in their state to use them for his own glory and purposes. And then we saw the remedy for that unbelief, which is always to see more of Christ, to see him truly and rightly and accurately and to receive him by faith. These verses before us this morning are Jesus' exhortation to those unbelieving hearts. He now addresses that crowd in verses 44 through 50. And it reads like a a courtroom scene almost. They have been trying Jesus in the court of public opinion. The official verdict will come in on Friday morning as the leaders convict him of blasphemy and they condemn him to die. But here is Jesus' last public defense. You remember when he's put on trial, he says nothing. He says precious little. He's silent like a lamb before its shears. He's led to the slaughter. He has said everything he needs to say. They know who he is. He's made clear his character, his nature, his mission, and his message, and of their impending judgment. And here is his last public defense. It's a mini-sermon with a clear call to those who refuse to believe. It's more than just Jesus defending himself. It's an exhortation to un believing hearts. And I want you to see how compassionate that is. How merciful that is of our Lord. If if you were rejected in similar ways, if you had been this clear, if you had done these many mighty works, would you be able to respond as Jesus does here? And of course not, because you're not him. How merciful of our Lord to one more time say, listen, here's the truth. Here's who I am. And here's what's happening if you continue in unbelief. I'm going to start at verse, the end of verse 36 and read down through verse 50. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. 
Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to the world to, ju- to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. We have before us an amazing sermon by the best preacher on the best subject. This is Christ preaching about Christ. And we see here so many threads of truth in these short verses that weave together themes throughout John's gospel. So Jesus said over and over again throughout his gospel that he was one with the Father. Again, that is a focus in his final words. He's been clear that he's come as the light of the world. Here again, he shows that he's the light of the world. He said many times that he's come to save the world, not to judge the world. He's warned them before that they will be judged on the last day if they die in their sins. Here again, one last time, he makes that abundantly clear. He said again and again that what he says and what he does is in submissive obedience as the obedient son to the father who sent him. So you have to ask yourself as you hear this sermon read and you consider it, is this just Jesus firing one more arrow of truth, kind of getting it all off of his chest one last time? Saying, fine, if you're going to be that way, here it all is. Here's the dump truck of truth about who I am. Take it or leave it, I'm leaving. Is he righteously angry? Is he self-defensive? Or as I've already mentioned, is there a compassionate and merciful purpose to this sermon? The immediate context is unbelievable unbelief of the crowd and the religious leaders. They've heard and seen undeniable truths and signs, yet they refuse to believe. And John told us there's some in the crowd who have believed that Jesus is the Christ, but have refused to fully believe, to go all the way. They've stayed hidden, refusing to pronounce their belief in Christ publicly. And so to that crowd specifically to their hard, unbelieving, and wavering hearts, Jesus says this in verses 44 to 50. And I think the overwhelming point of Jesus is your unbelief is deadly serious. If you're going to keep doing this in your unbelief, you must know what you're doing. You're not rejecting some random prophet, some mere human messenger who's come with some Nice message from heaven. You are rejecting God in the flesh. 
And this has eternally serious consequences. It really is easy, fairly easy to dismiss the weight of unbelief, isn't it? We swim in the, the waters of belief and unbelief all day, every day. You've already had to make hundreds of decisions today about what you're going to believe and what you're not going to believe. What you're going to take as truth and what you're going to look at with a hairy eyeball and say, I'm not sure that's true. I don't think that's right. You've had to make hundreds of those decisions, and you do every day. And when you make a decision to dismiss something as not to be believed or trusted, you then move on with life, and you generally don't think too much about the consequences of that unbelief. And that's one thing when it's something in the political realm that might affect how you would vote on Tuesday. That has consequence, and it matters, but you can move on and continue in life. It's a much more serious matter when it comes to the words and works of Jesus. To all that he has said on mission from his Father. To set up this context, you know mankind has had a long historical pattern of questioning the words of God. Of not believing what God has said. Regardless of the consequence it's a pattern set for us in the garden by Adam and Eve. What they established for us, we continue in, don't we? How quick we are to believe the lie of God's enemy, has God really said? And to carry that to our own new egregious levels. Our sinful hearts want a pluralistic reality where many things can be true at one time and have little consequence. We live in a world that wants to create its own truth, to make its own way and have little consequence to making up its own truth. Our own sinful hearts want to establish ourselves as judge over God's revelation and to take it or leave it based upon our own intellect or our own discretion. But you must know from the words of Jesus, that kind of unbelief has deadly serious consequence. You can do that, but you will be eternally sorry. This is what the crowd is doing. They've weighed the words and works of Jesus in the balance of their opinions, and they have found him lacking, haven't they? They've determined to discard him and throw him on the trash heap of public popularity. Let's move on to the next famous, popular person. And so with one last sermon, Jesus cries out and warns them of the serious reality of their own unbelief. As we see this reality, we see clearly the serious nature of our unbelief. We're warned by it by four things in our text that are true of Jesus. The first is Jesus' nature. Unbelief is so serious because of Jesus's nature. His core truths about him in these seven verses, he starts by pointing them to his very essence, his very nature. He cried out, the text says, which is only said a handful of times in all of the Gospels. It's different than just Jesus saying it. It's him yelling almost at the top of his lungs to get the attention of the crowd, to speak over all of the chaos and all of the other conversations, to draw attention of all people to himself within the sound of his voice. 
He cries out to all of them and he says to these unbelievers, whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is here testifying to his oneness with the Father, his solidarity with the Father. They are one in essence and nature and to his nature as the light of the world. Now he said these things before, right? We've seen him reference these things throughout the Gospel of John. He's told them back in chapter 5 that if they believe in him, they're not just believing in him, but they're believing in the one who sent him. He reiterates again one last time, there is inseparable solidarity between Father and Son. You cannot split these two. You cannot take them apart. You cannot take some of the Father and some of the Son. They come together, Father, Son, and Spirit as a triune God. To believe in one is to believe in both. It's a package deal. John told us in chapter 1 when he said that Jesus came into the world as the Word of God. He came to reveal the Father. Remember that? Chapter 1, verse 14, the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18 of chapter 1, John reiterates and says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So no one's seen God with their eyes, but the only God who is at the Father's side has come to literally exegeomai, exegete God to us. Reveal him to us. Lay him open before us. This is why he is the word of God sent from the Father to make known to us the nature, reality, essence, glory, goodness, grace, power, majesty, mercy of God the Father. This is Jesus in the flesh making those things known. And he says then also to see the Son is to See the Father. So you believe the Son, you're believing the Father. To see the Son is to see the Father. Jesus had clearly said that in verse 45. That's exactly what the rest of the New Testament affirms, right? So what Jesus says is amplified, reiterated, and applied in all the epistles of the New Testament. Think of your New Testament as progressive. In the Gospels, we have Jesus appearing and his life explained in the book of Acts, we have his, his word and his message, his gospel expanding as the church is built. In the epistles, Romans through Revelation, we have his words applied to the church, explained to the church, made known to the church that because these things were said by Jesus, here's how it matters to the church. And so what Jesus says in John's gospel is reiterated all throughout the New Testament. Namely, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that the Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Sounds like John 12, 45. If he sees me, he sees the Father. Colossians 1 verse 15 says that Jesus is the image or the icon of God, the imprint of God, the representation of God on earth. And then in verse 6 
It says that the light of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, sorry, it says that Jesus is the image in verse 4. And then in verse 6, it says that he is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that he has shown in our hearts in the face of Jesus Christ. We can only truly know God through Jesus Christ. The Son came into the world as the supreme self-revelation and self-disclosure of the triune God. So, Beloved, it is no small matter to reject that revelation. He has not come to tell you how best to cook your eggs in the morning. He has not come to tell you how best to set up political systems on planet earth. He has not come to tell you how, how best to get along with one another. He has come to reveal God to you. To make known the triune God to you, to disclose God to you by grace through faith. It's really an act of massive creaturely rebellion and cosmic treason of the first degree to say, I will not believe this revelation. This is not you dismissing the words of your toddler who runs into you from the other room and tries to explain to you the mess in that room before you go see it for yourselves. It's easy in that moment to say, yeah, I'm not sure I'm buying it. I'm not sure I'm believing it. The consequence is pretty small if you choose to make up your own mind as you go into the next room and figure it all out. Friend, you don't have that privilege when it comes to revelation from God through his son. You don't stand as judge over these words. You stand as one to receive these words. To believe these words, and if not believing them, to be judged by these words. Not only that, but Jesus also is the light who has come into the world. Look how Jesus says that in verse 46. He says that he has come into the world as light. That communicates something to you. That communicates that the light of Jesus pre-existed his coming. So he did not come into the world to become the light. He pre-existed his entrance into the world as light. That's what he says in Romans, or John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. That's his essence and his nature. He pre-existed his entrance. He is the light and has come into the world to shine upon the world. It's like the physical sun. How does the physical sun operate? Does it turn on as the earth spins to show light to you and then it turns off at nighttime and comes back on? In the, of course not. It's always shining. It is pre-existing every day. And as the earth spins into its glorious rays, it dawns upon you and shines upon you as it shines upon all of the earth. So too is Jesus Christ shining as the light, the revelation, the pure, unadulterated truth about God. The glory of the nature of his character pre-existed as God, as the word of God. Now he enters into the world, co-equal, co-eternal, co-glorious with God the Father. And he enters in to make God known to us. Notice also how Jesus as the light has come into the world indiscriminately. He did not come to shine on parts of the world and not on others. Just like the sun does not come around every day to, to shine on Newton but not on Wichita. 
to be closed off to one part of God's creation. No, the, the light of God shines into the world. The sun shines into every part of the world. Spiritually speaking, there is no other light that can shine into spiritual darkness and show the way of salvation. There's no other sun to shine on sin-darkened hearts in any part of the world, in any ethnic group, under any language, in any generation, in any part of history. There is one light, the light of the world, and it is Jesus who shines into the world this truth. Therefore, to reject Jesus is to reject God in the flesh. I know those are ABCs of theology, but to bring that home to roost upon our unbelief, to see that when you refuse to heed the words of this messenger sent from heaven, you are choosing to remain in the darkness, even though the light is so gloriously and brightly shining upon your heart. True faith in Jesus is not faith in a mere human agent, not faith in a mere messenger sent from heaven, Faith in Jesus is faith in God himself. To reject Jesus is to reject God and remain in darkness. Unbelief is also so serious because of Jesus' mission. See that in verses 46 to 47. Jesus came into the world as light so that whoever believes in him may not remain in darkness. Friend, Jesus' mission was not to come into the world and give information to us about himself. He did not come into the world to, to give us a theological construction of the truth about the Godhead so that we can know in our head what is true about Father, Son, and Spirit. He did not come to show us a better way that was less dark. No, he came to expose the deeds of darkness and to rescue us from the clutches of darkness, from enslavement to sin and hell, to set us free. He came to remove us, take us out from under the authority and the reign of darkness over us and to place us into the kingdom of his beloved son, which is a kingdom of light and life. And so Jesus says it's an oxymoron to claim belief in Jesus while remaining in darkness. To do so, you are betraying the very mission Jesus came to accomplish. He came so that you would not remain in darkness. So if you claim faith in Jesus and remain in darkness, you are denying the tip of the spear of his mission. He came to rescue you from that, to remove you from that, to take away sin's power over you, and gloriously one day its very presence in you. It's the same thing that the Apostle John will come back to say in his letter. I read part of it already this morning, but 1 John 5, or 1, verses 5 through 7 says, God is light. That's his essence, his nature, it's who he is. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And do not practice the truth. I mean, that's cutting it about as straight as I know how. Claim faith in the light, God who is light, and remain in darkness. John says you're lying. 
not practicing the truth. But he goes on, if we walk in the light, if the, the course of our life, if the, the habits and path of our lifestyle communicate our faith as we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, walking in the darkness and walking in the light is speaking to the course of life, our pattern of living. So if one has been rescued from the darkness by the light of the world, namely Jesus, then your life patterns are no longer identified by constant darkness. You have the ongoing reality of the presence of sin. There's so much more we can say there. And the progressive change from darkness to light takes a lifetime as you're sanctified by the word, renewed in your mind, moved along in your practice, and you're growing in your love for God and for others. But there is a fundamental change for those who are born again by the power of God from on high. They are brought from darkness to light, becoming more and more aware of the goodness and glory of the light of truth and grace. This is Jesus' mission in coming, and you must know he is effective in accomplishing that mission. He does not fail. He does not promise to remove you from the darkness and then leave you in it. He comes to rescue you from the dark and he sets you squarely in the light, gives you ongoing constant grace to sustain you in the light. There really are only two options, both in this life and in the one to come, right? That is light and darkness, truth and error, belief or unbelief. What is true right now will one day give way to that which is forever going to be true. So the darkness of sin and unbelief will lead to an eternity of darkness in the eternal lake of fire. This is why Jesus in in Matthew's gospel calls it outer darkness. You're cast away from the joyful presence of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And what is true of you now in the darkness if you do not turn to Christ and believe in Him and be saved by His grace, you, when you die, if you die in your sins, will be taken and cast into outer darkness. That which is true of you now will become your eternal reality, suffering under the condemnation of your own sinful rebellion. In contrast to that, those who have been rescued from that darkness will one day enter into what? Eternal light. Described by John in Revelation 21 and 22 as as God dwelling with man and man with God, so much so that the new heavens and the new earth do not need a light source. They do not need a created source of light because the glory of God is light and it will lighten up that new universe. As God sits at the center of our worship for all of eternity, lighting our way with his glory. The new Jerusalem will be defined by the glory of the light of God. Jesus says, this is my mission. I've come to rescue my sheep from darkness and bring them into light, both now and in the eternal glorious light yet to come. Reiterates that in verse, 20, verse 47, excuse me, when he says that he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He's addressing their profound disappointment with him as their Messiah. 
Now, you can't understand his words until you understand how profoundly disappointed the Jewish people were with what Jesus did on Monday and Tuesday. They were convinced that this Messiah would come and would overthrow Rome. They had a theology of the Messiah that conflated his first and second comings. That skipped over texts like Isaiah 53 and his The Suffering Servant. Thought that was speaking of, of national Israel as the Son of God. And they thought that in his coming, the Messiah's coming, one coming, he would come and judge the nations deal with the oppressors of God's people, namely Rome in first century, and put the world in order under his powerful reign. And they had seen works that said, this guy can do that, right? He can open deaf ears. He can rule the world. He can cause blind eyes that have been blind from birth to see. He can rule the world. He's caused a man dead four days in the tomb to rise to new life again. He can rule the world. He's fed 5,000 men and all of their families, 15,000 plus, with five loaves and two fish. He can rule the world. He's walked on water. He can rule the world. He's healed the lame. He can rule the world. He's touched the leper, and the leper's been clean. He can rule the world. And that's what fueled their praise of him on Sunday morning as he entered into Jerusalem, and they hailed him as king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, save us, O King. And then Monday and Tuesday, he stood in their temple courtyards, their place of worship, and he said, listen, this is the kind of king I'm going to be. He called out all of the hypocrisy and sinfulness of their leaders. He said, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to exceed theirs. Because I'm calling theirs out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. They came to the end of Tuesday and they wanted nothing to do with this king. So isn't that rejection of this work of Jesus to save them really show the arrogance of man? So if Jesus had stood in their temple on Monday and Tuesday and had given a political speech about how he was going to set up the nation of Israel to overthrow Rome, reestablish Jerusalem as a cosmopolitan city over which all of the world would be ruled from his throne? Don't you think he would have received standing ovations, slaps on the back, glad-handed handshakes, songs of praise and adoration? His political action committee would have had historic contributions. His coffers would have been overflowing. He could have run the gamut and ruled the world. You see what that shows you? about the heart of man. That apart from grace, we're deceived to think that our most pressing problem is outside of us. Apart from grace, we're deceived to think that our most pressing problem is a political one. That our most pressing problem is what others are doing in our nation or in the nation of others. That our most Pressing need is a conquering king who can come as our savior. Who can display powerful supernatural acts to overthrow all our enemies and establish us on our feet again as God's chosen people, the Jews. Don't you see in them that which is so human? To look at reality and completely miss the main problem? Don't you see that pervasive in your own worldview? 
how quick you are to look at what's going on in your life and the lives of others and totally miss the problem? Think that it has something to do with circumstances or difficulties or trials and miss the sin issue that often roots itself at the core of all of those issues? And then to look for a solution to something that actually won't bring salvation? Because you know if Jesus had done what they wanted him to do, then it's over, right? They're all going to be judged under sin if Jesus doesn't go to the cross for them? So his refusal to receive their praise and be the king they wanted him to be was his commitment to do for them what they needed most, not what they wanted most. So Jesus is clear. His first coming is all about salvation, not judgment. He's here to save us from our judgment, not to judge us for our sin. But that judgment is coming, he says in verses 47 to 48. He says to the unbelieving crowd, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Friend, unbelief is so serious because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The guarantee of that judgment is the word spoken by Christ. Though heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said in Mark's gospel, my words shall never pass away. Though every other man will prove to be a liar, Romans 2 says, the word of the Lord will prove true and right. Everyone in all of humanity will be held accountable to the word of God, namely the word of Christ. To whether or not they believed what he said. Judgment is coming. There's an interesting parallel to this in our own society today. If you think at all about popular narratives and headlines and news stories happening today, our world speaks to you about a coming judgment day. And in speaking to you about that coming judgment day, they try to impact your practice. They, they try to message you with, this is how you should now live in light of that coming judgment day. And so they press you every day, and it's increasing tenfold almost every day about the seriousness of our present climate crisis, as they call it. They tell you that if we continue using non-renewable energy to fuel our lives, and if we keep being unresponsible consumers, we will pollute our way out of existence, right? That's what they're telling you. Saying to you, if you're not careful how many miles you drive tomorrow, you'll probably bring the apocalypse onto our world and we'll all die in 30 years or 10 or 15 or whatever number they want to come up with. They tell you that we as mankind will destroy life on earth because we are irresponsible stewards of what we have in our resources. Now, there's a lot to say about stewardship of God's creation. Amen. Praise God. Be a good steward. Be thoughtful about all that God has given you and use it well. But root yourself in the promise of the book of Genesis when God said to Noah, I will never destroy the earth. This rainbow is a promise that this earth will go on and fruit time and harvest and spring and fall will continue until that last appointed day of the return of Christ. Even this last week, climate activists glued themselves to a Botticelli painting in Florence, Italy. Maybe you saw that headline. 
You know what their group is called? Their group is called the last generation. They held up a sign saying no more gas, no more coal. Their messaging is clear. If we don't change our cultural habits, we will destroy our planet and we will be, we will be the last generation. We will bring the apocalypse now. Now, you wouldn't expect anything different from a naturalistic, humanistic worldview, would you? If you believe, as they do, that mankind is here formed out of some primordial goo in some primordial swamp that came into existence of its own accord billions of years ago in some kind of method that no one can identify or explain or understand, then you would naturally believe that this, this environment is so unstable, it can quickly go back to primordial goo. And you're going to be a part of it if you're not careful how much gas you use, right? That's, that's the end result of a worldview absent of revelation and truth from God. Now what happens if you ignore the words of environmental activists? What happens if you, don't, if you choose to not believe them? If you continue to drive your car, use electricity, and have AC in your house? Praise God for AC. <laughs> There's a push to have no more AC, I've got to tell you. They're saying that too. Not in my lifetime. <laughs> Friend, you can safely ignore those warnings and have no eternal consequence upon you or upon future generations. Mankind is not that powerful to bring about the apocalypse by how we use oil drilled out of the ground. Okay? Let's be clear on that. But Jesus is making clear in our text that there is a true and real judgment day coming which cannot be ignored or avoided. And if you do, if you choose to disbelieve his words, it will have eternal consequence. Acts 17, I read this for you a couple of weeks ago. It's so helpful. Paul in that cosmopolitan of cities in Athens preaches the gospel to people who worship all kinds of gods. And he says, listen, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see what Paul did there? He took the command given to Jesus who came and faithfully ministered the words of life of the gospel of himself to his generation. Paul takes that message and he has a command now to preach to his generation. Friend, this is the urgency of your evangelism. There are people in your life who don't need to be nudged into eternal life. They don't need to be coddled and, and brought in with your arm around them and hoping maybe someday you'll get them across the edge into faith in Jesus. I don't mean you don't love them, care for them, be patient with them, invest in them, have relationships with them, but be clear with them. They are commanded to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they might not make it to their next breath. 
So do it now. It's an urgent message. And it's an eternally significant message. And so our evangelism needs to be marked by that kind of urgency. That kind of loving care. Caring enough to tell them the truth. If activists can be so compelled to go into a museum in Italy and glue themselves to a painting so that they make worldwide headlines. How much more ought the church with the truth of the gospel be compelled to invest in those you know? To say to them, I love you enough to tell you the truth. There's a Jesus who came and spoke and you need to believe him. And if you don't, there's a judgment coming. It's an urgent message. Romans 2, 15 and 16. Speaking of Gentiles who do not have the law, they have the law written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness to them. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Appeal to their conscience. They know God exists. They know they're under judgment the Holy Spirit witnesses to them that they're under judgment, that they're on the losing side. Be his mouthpiece and say to them, there is a way out. And he is Christ. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. John in his revelation in the last book details for us that judgment, the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is a terrible scene, a terrifying scene. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, that outer darkness. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus has that judgment on his mind as he speaks to them in John 12. Says to these faces in the crowd before him who refuse to believe, listen, that judgment day is coming. And you'll be judged based on what you do with my words. And he wants you to know the same thing this morning. And he asks you from this text, what have you done with my words? Have you believed in me? And believed in the Father. Have you seen me and seen the Father? Lastly, unbelief is so serious because of Jesus' message. What is his message? Well, it's a message given to him by his Father. It's one he's been commanded to say and to speak at the end of verse 49. In other words, Jesus has not gone off on his own. He has not left heaven of his own initiative to come rescue us from God's wrath on some rogue mission of which the Father doesn't approve. He is not heaven's runaway. Jesus has come, sent by the triune Father, Son, and Spirit, the council before the foundation of the world, 
in which they agreed this is how we are going to plan to redeem sinners. Before he ever spoke one word of creation, the Godhead agreed that the Father would send the Son into the world to save the world through humble service and obedient life, coming with a clear message, explaining and expressing the nature and character and gospel of God, giving his life as a ransom for many upon the cross of Calvary as the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. The plan was for Jesus by the sacrifice of himself to make a way for our salvation. And then the Spirit comes after the Son to apply that redemption to those called by grace. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit of God descends upon the heart of unbelievers and brings them from unbelief to belief, from death to life, from darkness to light, from shame to glory from condemnation to salvation. This is the eternal plan of God carried out in real time by the Son and the Spirit in command, obedience to the command of the Father. Jesus' point here is to let you know, let the crowd know, that his message was not derived from any human source, which kind of tells you again how human Jesus was, doesn't it? The fact that he has to keep making that clear let you know that they thought of him as man. Like, this guy is one of us. Which is why he has to keep saying to them, this is not my message alone. I did not come up with this at age 12 because I'm so smart and I want to save you from your sins. No, I pre-existed you and I came into the world with this message. I am God in the flesh and I came in obedience to the Father. He says to them, you must believe. This is in keeping to Deuteronomy 18. You remember that from our study of Deuteronomy? The Lord said, through Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Listen, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. That's not exactly what, like what Jesus just said in John 12 and verse 49. He's given me a command what to say and what to speak. The Father's given him the words to say and the unction in the moment to say it. Doing it all in obedience and in accord with the command of the Father. And then verse 19 goes on in Deuteronomy 18, 19. Whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, I stand as you're in your midst with the command of God, saying his words and speaking them according to his command. And if you don't hear and heed, you will be judged by those words. Notice that the commandment to come is the word and to speak these words is eternal life in verse 50. The words of Jesus are always life-giving. He spoke the truth about himself and offered to them unending life if they would simply believe. He said that throughout the gospel, right? He said that in chapter 4 to the Samaritan woman. When he asked her for a drink and they have that exchange, he says, if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me for a drink and I would give you water and it would be like, and I would give you my words, it would be like a spring of water springing up to eternal life. This happens again in chapter 6 after he miraculously provides for the crowd. He says, my words are spirit and life. 
And then he asks his disciples as everybody starts wandering away and departing from Jesus, he says, are you going to go too? Remember what Peter says in 668? Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. So how serious is it to deny these words? To reject Jesus, to refuse to hear and heed these words? Well, it is deathly serious, meaning it will bring death. The opposite of life is death. And the only way to have life is in and through Christ by hearing, believing, and heeding his words. So friend, I ask you, have you been brought from death to life today? Is the Spirit of God pressing upon your soul and saying you are not yet in the light? Right now, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Right now, look to him and live. May today be the day of salvation for you because if it's not, tomorrow might be the day of condemnation. Come to Christ and know peace with God through him. Brothers and sisters, I compel and command you by this text to evaluate where you may continue in partial unbelief. You're in the light, but you continue as I do to struggle to hear and heed all of Christ's words, right? Where have you minimized his words? Where have you played with his truth? Where have you said, I'm glad that's true for others, but it doesn't need to be true for me? Where have you heard and seen the command of King Jesus and thought, I'll do that tomorrow? Beloved, if you're in the light, May God, by his kindness, compel you by grace to believe him and to walk by faith that will look like humble, submissive obedience to him. May God help us grow in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the privilege to study it deeply together. I do pray for unbelievers among us who do not yet know Christ Lord, we cannot make them believe. So we beg of you for your spirit and his grace to apply your word to their hearts and to bring them into the kingdom of your beloved son. We ask for us as followers of Jesus that you would help us to be marked by those who hear and heed and obey your word. So Father, would you show us graciously, kindly, patiently, as you always do, where we need to repent of our unbelief and walk in faith and obedience to you. Help us, Lord, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.